Welcome back. This week, I talk with David Ambrose. David really has an incredible story and journey that we're going to cover in today's conversation. One quick note before we get started. If you haven't, please go give us a five-star rating on your listening platform. If you are on Apple, you can give us a written review. That would be a lot of help on our end and really spread the show to other people trying to find it. So back to David. We talked through his story, and David was born into homelessness in New York City. And we talked through his life, all the challenges he faced with him and his family. Um, He had a lot of challenges in those times, but we talked through how he overcame those challenges, got into foster care. I really learned a ton about the entire system of foster care and how David really had a lot of odds against him, uh, but he continued to persevere and overcome these challenges to end up being the person he is today. And he's really an incredible person. I mean, we talked through it and you're going to hear it, but he, uh, he ended up going to law school, graduating law school. Um, now he's an Amazon executive and, and, you know, killing it in the business world. But I think what he is most proud of is, is probably how he is a child welfare expert advocate. And he is also a foster parent himself. Um, he recently released his memoir, A Place Called Home, and it is available everywhere. And I have it listed, um, his website in the show notes, where you can get uh, more information about David and definitely go buy his book. Um, we got to talk about Rebel Rabbit. Rebel Rabbit is an awesome partner of the show. And what I love to focus on about Rebel Rabbit is the harm reduction aspects of it. And we all know, or we've all been there, we all know people who go out, they got to drink just to be social. They feel like they have to drink to be part of whatever is going on. It could be a party, it could be a wedding, it could be a tailgating event. And what Rebel Rabbit is doing is taking that feeling of having something in your hand and drinking it, but they're making it alcohol-free. It is a seltzer. It is infused with THC, Delta 8 or Delta 9, which is completely legal. And if you replace that or replace your alcohol drink with a rebel rabbit you're going to still have a great time you're going to get that feeling of being social but you know what you're going to sleep a lot better you're going to be hydrated it has like six grams of sugar um, and you're going to wake up feeling great you're not going to have a hangover you're going to be way more productive in the days following so i love to think about it is if somebody is know they're drinking too much or they were trying to stop drinking um, rebel rabbit is a great replacement whether you drink alcohol a lot, a little, or none at all, um, Rebel Rabbit is kind of a, uh, a drink for you, or it definitely is a drink for you, um, and you definitely should try it. Go to their website, drinkrebelrabbit.com, use promo code LIFE20, and you will get 20% off your order. Again, go to their website, drinkrebelrabbit.com, use promo code LIFE20, and you'll get 20% off your order. They're also racking up the retailers, so... If you are, you know, you can also go out and purchase it from one of their retailers. They have all that search um, built into their website. So go check it out. Either order or go check out one of their retailers. Doesn't matter to me. Just buy some Rebel Rabbit um, and you'll be thanking yourself the morning after any type of event. And as Engineered Sleep will do for you, if you're going to get a great sleep and you're drinking Rebel Rabbit, you might as well get your master's mattress from Engineered Sleep. They're the best mattresses in the game. And not only mattresses, but they have the best customer service. They have the best people behind their product at Engineered Sleep. 
Their website is engineeredsleep.com. If you use promo code LIVE15, you're going to get 15% off your order. So again, engineeredsleep.com, promo code LIVE15, get 15% off your order. But most importantly, you're going to be sleeping better. You're going to be feeling better after these products. And uh, yeah, so reach out to them, check them out. And without further ado, here's my conversation with David Ambrose. David, good morning. Thank you for joining me. First off, how's your morning going? Uh, relentlessly forward. I am a morning person, so this is well into my day, and I feel great. I've worked out, and I'm having an enormous pot of coffee. And one of the best things about uh, life as a uh, living alone is that I get to have the entire pot to myself. Wow. What? Uh, so it's eight fifteen where you live. Mm-hmm. I'm in South Carolina. You're in California, I believe. Mm-hmm. What? Um, what's your morning look like? Uh, I try and work out before my day starts. Otherwise, it doesn't happen. And um, that always sets me up for kind of a more pleasant mental state for the entire day. I mm-hmm. um, kind of gives me a buzz. So this morning, I did a brutal hit workout, high-intensity training with a very angry woman who um, <laughs> kicked my ass, if I can curse. And uh, then I came back. I took care of my dog. I got through some emails. Um, it's a very typical morning for me. Although today, unusually, I'm at home for most of the day. Usually, I'm not. I'm out in the field doing different things. Um, but it's a great morning. I'm here in my home office, which yeah, I love. It's beautiful. Um, thank you. And um, you know, I learned about your story recently, about a week ago. And as we discussed before recording, you're kind of new to this too. You're about 20 mm-hmm. days in. You're a new author. You're telling your story and it's really incre- incredibly inspiring, and I just want to get into your story and then get into how people can help and kind of educate people on the foster care system and all that sort of stuff. So Great. to hop right in, in your childhood, do you remember a time before you were homeless? Mm-hmm. No, you know, my my very first memories are with my family 40 plus years ago in uh, New York City. And we were, we were, I was born into homelessness and I stayed there for, for more than a decade. Um, that was what was normal to me. And homelessness doesn't always mean you're living in a park or something. Sometimes we had a, an apartment for a couple of weeks. Sometimes we squatted, um, but it was never more than a short period of time. But my very first memories uh, were living in um, mass transit. So we would ride the subway one end to the other in inclement weather, or we would stay underground in different underground facilities in New York City, Port Authority bus station or um, uh, Penn Station. And it was New York City in the early 80s. I mean, it was not great. So my memories are compounded by um, the situation in the city at that time, which was people who have my age vintage might remember or have seen movies about, but it wasn't a great place to grow up at that time. Who, so it was you, your mom, and did you have mm-hmm. siblings too? Yeah, so my mom, um, Mary, my brother, Alex, and my sister, Jessica. So it was the three siblings and my mom. And we were um, wandering and homeless together for that entire period of time. When you were homeless, like how do you go about finding food or finding mm-hmm. resources? Kind of like the stuff we probably all take for granted. Um, yeah. But like, how do you remember food or probably trying to take a shower or, or get mm-hmm. clean? So I'm sure people who are listening today have seen homeless people wherever it's wherever they are. And the reality is we dehumanize the homeless mm-hmm. in Los Angeles. We talk about cleaning it 
up and the it being people like my family you don't realize that you know women are menstruating uh boys and girls are going through puberty they need to eat every day they have to find a place to defecate um god if they only had regular access to a shower and my family faced that exactly and you learn very quickly how to make uh, your core needs how to how to achieve them and that's sometimes through osmosis of the people around you sometimes it's stuff that your mom teaches you um for me and my siblings as, as young as i can remember it was about survival and our hierarchy of needs and quite often our hierarchy of needs was avoid violence from whomever usually my mother but not always her others too and then food and then everything else after that uh food was a daily struggle and uh it's still what we goes on today 8.6 million children live in poverty in america uh, more than half the schools in America have a free lunch program. They don't have a free lunch program because people have too much money. They have a free lunch program because those kids need calories. And we have done great things to reduce that. We've, we've reduced by half the number of people, the number of children living in poverty. But we should go farther because my family, we'd eat out of the trash. I tell a story in the book about uh, a pizza parlor and how we would go by there because I love pizza. And <laughs> people doesn't? don't like crust. I don't understand it. But I remember growing up being like, I'm loving some crust. And you would you would just dive. Um, we would steal food. I would steal food. Mm -hmm. um, hunger was super important. And you mentioned just like the lack of dignity with regards to self-care. It's profound. I mean, I tell a story in the book about being in a library, a public library at a story time. And a mom stood above me and, and basically yelled at me to get away from her son. And to her credit, I was probably had lice. It definitely was filthy and smelled and had probably hadn't showered in months. And I wouldn't want my child sitting next to me, but it was so shameful. And it stayed with me even to this day. We can do better. I think mm -hmm. as a country that sent people to the moon, we can definitely do better. We can make sure there's no homeless children. We can make sure homeless people have dignity. We can solve this mm -hmm. uh, and my family uh, and their story that I share hopefully inspires people to believe that we can and should. Do you recall maybe the first moment or, or first instance where you realized your mom was struggling with mental health, some type of disorder? You know, it was my normal. So I think when, for example, we look at a map of the world North America is in the north and South America is in the south, but that is just made up. We could turn the globe and it would be as true as it would be this way, where, you know, reverse it. For me, the normal was my mom in her many states. Mm -hmm. And that was, was she bipolar. What was her? Uh, she has a rather lengthy diagnosis that has evolved over time. Um, but uh, you name it. Mm -hmm. um, I want to protect a little bit of her privacy, but sure. she she has a host and it's out there, but she has a host of mental illnesses, including things that cause uh, depression and delusion. And it would come and go and, and wax and wane. And for my mom, that was normal. You know, I didn't know if she was listening to voices that day, if she had a delusion about her role in the Irish peace process, or if she thought someone was, was hurting me when in fact it was her. So I just never knew with my mom. And that to me was normal. With and society reinforced that. Yeah. You know, and, and as a kid, I mean, you wouldn't know anything else. No. You know, that's your mom. Mm -hmm. With school, is school 
for homeless or you know kids in poverty children in poverty um is school like available how how do kids get into school like for me i feel like that's even difficult for them to find a school or like maybe even get accepted into school or yeah sure their own time for school and get transportation to school like how was that for you uh school was impossible um just candidly impossible we attended rarely it was super important when we did though uh, school was a place we had warmth, relatively speaking, a uh, freedom from violence, um, a little bit of compassion from individuals. You know, teachers would sneak me snack bars um, in my bodega bag, which was my backpack. Uh, bodega bag for people not from New York City is just a plastic grocery <laughs> bag. Um, you could probably see it. It says, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, they would sneak that to me. And it's because they knew, they saw, they saw the bruises, they saw the lice hopping off of me. School was everything. And you mentioned hunger, and I just wanna like bring these two together is, I know for my grades that if you looked at my classes before school lunch, I was failing. And if you looked after school lunch, I was basically an A student. <laughs> and the reason is very simple, <laughs> is I hadn't eaten since the last school lunch. Um, and I'm not the only kid. There was this kind of thing in LA. I don't know if people read about it, but there was all these young people who were diagnosed with learning disabilities. And then a nonprofit came by and did free eye exams. And many of the children wow. were found to not need uh, special classes. They needed glasses. glasses. <laughs> Schools have become the Costco of our culture. They are they are responsible now for shelter, food, therapy, clothing, family engagement, violence prevention, and we have not resourced them. We cut, 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 and then we're shocked, shocked, shocked when they are failing and teachers are retiring and feel under attack. If we are going to ask schools to be my shelter and feed me as a child and then provide mental health care, we need to we need to not arm them. I hate that phrase now. We need to support them mm -hmm. to achieve those goals. School was everything for me and school ultimately was my way out of poverty. And, and when you think about schools and teachers, um, I mean, in a lot of cases, they are the first like social interaction children have with like adults teaching them or learning how to coach or learning how mm -hmm. to interact with other children. And you talk about um, this instance you had when you did have lice mm -hmm. and you went to the school nurse and you felt that compassion. Can you tell me or talk through that instant and that story that you've told before? Yeah. So, you know, <clears throat> I, if people don't know the peanuts cartoon, there's a character with all the cloud of dust and dirt that floats around them. And it may be too, it may be too old the person. And, and a lot of people are losing that reference. I felt like I had a constant cloud of filth around me and it just, you stop smelling yourself after a while, right? Like we've all been in a place where like, don't doesn't that person smell them, their breath or their whatever. No. And it wasn't just smell. It was, I wore the same clothes for weeks. And then on top of that, I was in environments where I wasn't able to brush my teeth, wash anything. So, you know, I had rotten teeth, which smells. I had um, a complete lack of self-care. And that led me to uh, a terrible health state. And then on top of that, you run into conditions like um, oral herpes, where you get cold sores. Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, I had almost perpetually a case of lice. And I don't know if I'm particularly attractive to lice, if they like my blood, um, if they think I'm cute, 
but they just ate me up. And I mean that literally. It seemed like wherever I went, I would get them and they would stay on me. And it was it was a problem in New York City public schools and other public schools that I went to, to the point where, you know, there was a process. They would call the parent and the parent would come pick up the kid and then the class would be examined. But quickly, when I was in school, they realized that my mom wasn't going to treat this or treat me or help me. And I was, one instance I share in the book, I was taken to a school nurse office and she treated it. And it was very, um, it was so beautiful to me. And so, um, it sounds so weird to say, but so meaningful because rarely had I been touched by an adult, not in violence, Mm -hmm. rarely, you know, my mom, very loving person, but you know, often violent and no other adults were consistent in my life. And the school nurse was just such a loving person who not only, you know, put that smelly stuff in my hair, which if you've had lice or your kids have had lice, Mm -hmm. you know, but I walked away feeling like loved and seen and touched. And it was just so beautiful. And that was getting treated by lice. If it tells you how thirsty I was for some validation. Um, and she sent me home with a snack bar. Yeah. And um, that was a very, very important moment for me and shows you what schools schools do every day. Yeah, schools can be extremely powerful when in ways that people will never know. And for yeah. just instances, like a quick moment in time like that, like somebody helping you out like that, could have changed your life yeah. forever. When you continue, you know, you and your brothers and sisters continue to progress, y'all, y'all start to figure out like, maybe we gotta do something. Like maybe we gotta find a way out. Maybe yeah. we gotta like, you know, you tell this story. I think it was either your brother or sister that y'all put together this magical plan to like get them on a bike. Um, and were y'all in New Jersey at this time? No, we were actually in Western Massachusetts. Okay. Um, my mom had taken us out of New York City and into Boston and um, the environs. And um, for no no reason, the story's in the book. It's kind of fascinating and it's definitely a, a reflection of her mental state. But we ended up in Mass, Western Mass uh, through the shelter system. And they got us an apartment at the tail end of all these hops we made between shelters. And the situation just devolved. My mom's mental state devolved further. Um, and and her violence escalated dramatically. And, you know, she had often been incredibly violent with us, you know. And my brother uh, took a great deal of that. And I always felt, and I think we felt, that I was I was just a bit more durable as a punching bag. Um, and I don't say that jokingly. I just to understand my brother was smaller and um, more vulnerable, even though he was older than me. And my mom would just, for whatever reason, you know, sometimes focus on him to a real uh, extent. And there was a couple moments of violence that we realized that my mom could kill one of us and more likely than not, it would be him. It could be any of us, but it could be him. So we devised a plan where we were all going to run away in stages. And we sent my brother off. We stole a bike um, uh, put together a little stolen package of food and cashed food stamps until we had some money for him. And the plan was for him to bike from Western Mass to back to New York. That's right. Yeah. To take up with a, we used to live in this building short, shortly for a short time. And we had this neighbor, um, who was a prostitute. She had two beautiful sons and she was a very loving kind of 
louder than life character. Mm -hmm. And I cannot remember what I called her in the book because I couldn't use her real name. (laughs) But she was fabulous and just totally eccentric, but loving. And we're like, you're going to go to her and she'll take you in. (laughs) It's a badass woman. She knows she knows what's what. And so we sent my brother off. And that is the summer that um, that was the last summer we lived with my mom because that then initiated a further devolution of my mom's mental state and the upping of the violence to uh, nearly killing me, which ultimately is what predicated my entering foster care. Mm-hmm. How did you um, find out your brother made it? Uh, it was a while. Uh, <laughs> I mean, this is not like he texted me. Like, yeah, yeah. You know, like, <laughs> this is this is the 90s, early 90s. So it was like, you know, I didn't check his Facebook status. I love um, you always say that, like, he made it. And I'm like, yeah, because go. I think it's like, if you think about biking from Western Mass to New York, like, what are you thinking? You have to go up the, the freaking Appalachia. That's you know, why I balance. said New Jersey, because I was yeah. like, no way. They yes. biked from upper, you know, Massachusetts to... He's resilient, you know. He's an amazing and and amazing man today. And we talk about where we all are today, but uh he made it. And we all then went into foster care. And it was a while before my brother was reunited back to, or sent back to Massachusetts to enter foster care in this in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. And it was a couple, it was I believe it was at least a couple months before I knew he was okay and back and in state custody. When um what was the process? And you, you've talked about it a lot, but what was the process for you to get into foster care? And what was your first initial thought, like getting into foster care about like yeah. how you would be treated or, you know, sure. how your life would be? Yeah, you know, um, my social worker told me later that I was the first foster kid she ever detained, which is when you, you're removed. That was thrilled um, <laughs> and basically celebrating. If people remember Arsenio Hall, you know, like, whoa, whoa, whoa. let's go. Yeah, because it was, you know, I had recently suffered a vicious attack by my mother and it nearly killed me and very, 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 very violent. And I thought she was going to kill me. Um, And I had spoken to adults and, you know, it was very clear on my body what was going on to anyone that had eyeballs. And yet no one did anything. So when we went into foster care, I had this illusion in my head that we were saved um that we were saved and i think a lot of people have that delusion in our society that Mm -hmm. oh they're in foster care and then the quick thought after that is to be derogatory towards foster parents shame on us at least they open their home the more pernicious negative part is those of us who do nothing but complain and throw stones foster care was brutal i have license to say such (laughs) (laughs) um people who do nothing don't we should care vote, pay attention and learn, Mm -hmm. and then complain and do something. Um, (laughs) When I went into foster care, it was uh, immediately violent and negative. I, I say somewhat jokingly, but truthfully is that I learned that hell had a basement. Um, And I entered and I stayed there for quite a while. Uh, My, my initial placement was a group facility, a detention facility for how old were you? I was 12. And I was placed in a facility with basically juvenile delinquents that were violent and troublemakers, quote unquote. And I was placed there because I was gay and there was no placements for me. They would not place me. Uh, most people would not take me or place me with folks that were um, aware of that. Yeah. And the system became aware of that quickly. 
Uh, so I went into a detention facility. I stayed there. It was very violent in many different ways. And I was ultimately reunited with my brother and sister in one foster home after they had gone through a few. And I, too, had gone through a few. And then we were together there for a short time. Were, were there not a placement for you because you were gay? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, so families that wouldn't take you in or, or what yeah. was like, what was that? Why? So there and, and foster care is a hyper local program. So it's run at most states. It's run at the county level. So there's some truths, but then it may be filtered down in your own area. So uh, if you understand that and take what I'm saying with that knowledge. Right. Mm-hmm. So and it is constantly evolving. So we have um, uh, a system in place where kids are, are essentially ranked. You know, let's think of a scale of, for example, one through 10. And it's not a negative thing. It's it's a quick way to understand what is the need level of this child. So one is like, you know, totally functional, no problems, no behavioral health issues, totally fine. 10 would be, for example, could be a person with a severe disability that's going to need hands-on 24-7 nursing care. Or it could be a kid that's violent. So when you look at those rankings, homes are evaluated and approved for certain levels of care. And so in order to match those, you need to have that home have space. I was a 10. <laughs> so for being gay, I was a 10. And I'm using this, I'm using, this is not exactly how it works, but you, I'm trying to no, help people understand. understand. So as a 10, there's no placements except for these detention facilities, which of course they're designed for tens it's a detention facility yeah. it's a it's a congregate care kitty jail is what i call it even though it's not technically what it is that's what it was and because i was gay queer i was placed in that that space and it was a real struggle to find a quote unquote normal home that would take my level on got it that makes a lot i had no clue and that's great for me to like get an understanding of how that kind of works is there You've talked about how the system, I don't even know how to like word this the right way, treat you for being mm-hmm. gay. Like, what was that like? Like, were there adults like trying to figure this out or trying to help you through it? Or they were trying to like make you not be gay? Like, how does that even work? Yeah. Today in our foster care system, the most recent data shows that uh, foster youth, especially trans youth, are 20% of the foster care population. 20%. They queer people in our society are roughly speaking 10% mm-hmm. of the general population. We are double that in foster care. We are coming from places where it's not safe. We are coming from families that reject us or hurt us or communities that do such. Mm-hmm. So we're entering the system in droves. And back then, if, if we can all dig back in our deep memory, like, <laughs> you know, I think me having sex became legal in most states in 2000. I don't even know what it was, six, eight. Up until then, it was illegal. So digging deep back in the way back, it was considered something to deal with. And I don't think we, you know, are, when did we get gay marriage? Like five seconds ago? We have advanced so far so fast, but it wasn't long ago that this was the norm. Mm-hmm. And candidly, a lot of people still believe it. So I entered a system that was the public system, uh, which is all of our responsibility in a very, quote, liberal state can only imagine what it was like elsewhere. And the task before folks was to make me not gay. And, you know, just FYI to the listeners, still gay, very happily gay, (laughs) 
been gay for a while. I'm really good at being gay. Um, some say I'm an expert, but it, it was awful. And, mm-hmm. you know, my first interactions with consistent mental health professionals, if I can use that word loosely, is um, treatment for being gay. And we can condemn them and I can condemn them. But the reality is, does anyone know what the typical rate we pay mental health professionals to treat foster kids is today in their county? No. Well, no, because when you dig at the bottom of the barrel and you dig deeper and you hire that person with crap wages, what do you think you're going to get? We can do better, but we have to do better. I entered foster care and it was brutal and I had horrible mental health professionals telling me horrible things and foster families that were instructed how to treat me. And then some really evilly creative uh, folks that went further and I I barely survived that. How how did you turn your life around? I would challenge the hypothetical, uh, Your Honor, or or um, <laughs> teacher. I didn't have to. I was always very clear where I was headed. Mm-hmm. And it was from the first chapter that ends with my statement that I did not want this and this being a homelessness shelter covered in filth and sadness, sorrow and vomit in the middle of a, a cold spell in New York City. I knew I didn't want this and I knew I would, I would not, uh, I would not live in this for the rest of my life. I knew that I had to overcome all of these obstacles in the interim. And you know, the book opens with a dedication to my mom, two part for teaching me to forgive and for teaching me to conquer one impossible thing at a time. And that's really what my early life taught me is, you know, you can do it (laughs) because if you stop thinking that you would not make it through the day, you'd be hurt, you'd be killed, you'd starve, whatever it is. Um, If you stayed too long in a place in the cold and didn't find a place where you could not get harassed by the police, you would die of exposure. That's the first chapter. Yeah. So that always set me up for that. Absolutely. And, and, Today, like, you know, I live in Los Angeles and we have a, quite a homelessness uh, crisis here and we're dealing with it. I'm proud of the progress we've made as a city, um, but we still collectively like we would when you see someone on the side of the road and they're talking to themselves or they're mm-hmm. filthy or they're clearly problematic. We don't look at them with compassion. We look at them with like, when is someone going to fix this? Yeah. And this being the messy human condition, people are messy. And we have to get in there, roll up our sleeves and deal with it again. Like I, I'm always struck that we have forgotten as a country that we can do big things together. Mm-hmm. We sent a person to the moon. We're so proud when we build like a road. Now <laughs> we have forgotten that together we can do huge things. We can help people that are addicted. We can help people that are mentally ill. We can help children. We can decide tomorrow to have fully funded schools tomorrow. We just forget that we can do big things together and and people denigrate government. I don't. I'm here today because of it. We are the government. Government is a description of how we all play together so we don't (laughs) shoot each other. That's what government is. We are the government and voting once in a while does not this a republic make. We have to get way more engaged and lift up other people that need us, especially when they can't help themselves, especially Mm -hmm. at that moment. The team and the people at Engineered Sleep are offering you 15% off if you use promo code LIVE15 to get a new mattress. And I cannot tell you enough how much trust I have in the team at Engineered Sleep and the product they will provide to you 
if you have any questions about your current mattress. If you're getting bad sleep and you think it might be your mattress, it's time to upgrade your mattress. And the team at Engineered Sleep is here to do that for you. Use promo code LIVE15. You'll get 10% off your order. But most importantly, you're going to be working with an amazing company. You're going to have an amazing product. And you're going to start sleeping better at night and you'll start performing better on a daily basis so go to engineeredsleep.com use promo code live 15 get 15 percent off your order and start sleeping better and performing better on a daily basis what is misunderstood about the foster system or foster or children in foster care uh steve jobs coco chanel Dr. Ruth, Babe Ruth, Tolstoy, David Ambrose. David Ambrose. Uh, there we go. Um, and I can go on. Foster youth, adopted. People think of us with pity and sorrow and take no action. I always think about like the side of the highway. When you see a car accident, you're like, damn them for slowing down traffic. And then you're <laughs> sort of like, oh, I hope someone fixes that. I hope they're okay. But you're like yeah. both things at once. That is the condition of foster care is our country has given the government this awesome power to destroy families, which it should have sometimes. But then we've derelicted our duty, which is to make sure it's used thoughtfully, carefully, and with all judicious action. Two thirds of the kids entering foster care are there because of neglect. Neglect is a euphemism for poverty. We are breaking up hundreds of thousands of families because the parents can't afford rent, because mom lost a job, because, because, because. And it's hundreds of thousands of dollars to take care of a kid in care every year. We can do better. What's misunderstood about foster care is candidly even what it is. I can't tell you how, many, how often people ask me questions about adoption. Most foster kids are not up for adoption. Foster care is a system whose goal is to reunite the kid with the parents. That is the goal of foster care. It's not an orphanage. It's foster care until the parents get their stuff together so the kids can go back. Wow. That's the goal. So we first need to care as a country, as a people, about the system because these are literally our kids. When kids leave foster care, it's called emancipation which is an unfortunate and too apt description. More foster kids, when they leave foster care, will go to jail than go to college. Wow, More foster saying. kids will be homeless than go to college. And even, even just a two-year college, that's true. More girls will have a baby than go to college. We are their parents and we can do better. What's misunderstood? I, I don't even know that we're understood. People have given our government this awesome power and they should have it. But we should be better stewards of it because, you know, you, you shared a little bit about your own story. When people are in a state where they can't care for themselves or have no political power mm -hmm. or are shunned by society, that's when we need good people to step up. And foster care, first, we have to start caring. A kid is not a piece of trash or a collection of things that happen to them. They are a bucket of potential. And they're our responsibility when we take them away from their family. The first thing that's been understood is that it's your responsibility. Every you that's listening to this, even if you're not a voting person, you still can do something. Mm -hmm. And then the next thing is I want us to stop demonizing the actors in the system. My mom is not a bad person. My mom suffers from a debilitating mental health array of issues. Mm -hmm. Social workers that did not do their job to the extent they should have 
they're in the, the minefield, walking through this minefield. They are in the trenches of a war. They're under-supported and under-staffed. And then we expect them to be miracle workers. My sister's now a social worker. What she does every day with a master's degree for such little pay, it's heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. And then the foster parents, at least they open their homes. We all could do better. But we should not start by denigrating the people that are trapped in the system, whatever their role is. Sure. And I love how you use <clears throat> some examples of people that have like come out of foster care or been in very yeah. similar situations. And honestly, that is so when people ask me about addiction and mental health, I tell them, I'm like, well, you know what? Elton John, you know, was <laughs> an addict. You know, I tell them uh, Eva Mendez was an addict. Bradley Cooper was an alcoholic. And I just start rattling off all these people we look up to. And they don't have no clue that they're like sober or they've been through rehab or they've been through addiction and it totally switches their mindset right away. Uh, you know, I list in the back of the book, you know, James Dean, Marilyn Monroe, Eleanor Roosevelt, Maya Angelou, Tina Turner, Carol Burnett, J.R.R. Tolkien, Edgar Allan Poe, Simone Bolivar. <laughs> and I don't expect every foster kid to do that. I'd be happy if they reach their full potential, whatever it is. <laughs> But it's exactly that shock to the system to wake people up that every foster kid has the full potential to reach whatever it is they want to. Yeah. I always I always thought of the phrase like when I was a kid, I was like, I'm reaching for the stars, but I have short arms. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I need help. Yeah, like little T-Rex arms. I'm like reaching for the stars with short arms. Help. I need to step on someone's back. And the back is society. And they need to help lift up children and people like like you shared with your own story. We can't expect people to, to pull themselves up by the bootstraps if they don't have boots. Mm -hmm. Exactly right. They're stuck in a system that's fighting against them. Is, um, you know, we talk about we, we gotta care more things, you know, how it might be misunderstood or they might not be understood at all, but what are things when people ask you they can do? Um, yeah. Cause like you said at the very beginning, like I can't complain if I haven't done anything. You know, yeah. like I need to first like do something and then. Could you imagine if that was a true rule in our society? What a different <laughs> world. Um, look, I'm not an angel. I complain about a lot of things. Um, people say they're overwhelmed, but yet I listen to, you know, people talk about deep details and statistics about sports teams. Mm -hmm. They find the time. They analyze all these sure. phrases that I barely understand or care about. And then they dedicate the time to make sure they watch that thing, no matter where they are on whatever device they have to watch it on, even dialing up the radio again. That same passion has to come for our team, which is kids and vulnerable people. They are our team. And I talk about in the book, like I remember one year when the Super Bowl was happening and it was one of the teams from where I was living. And I just didn't understand why people were obsessed about men in tights when there was all these kids that were starving in these shelters I was at. I'm like, what about this team? No one cared. Mm -hmm. People painted themselves colors. And I'm like, I get it. And that's awesome. But we're your team. What can people do? Buy my book. Uh, I read the audio. Um, and not just because I want you to, but also because the whole book throughout it are, I would say, really fun lessons about the systems of poverty that trap my family. And as you go through it, you can kind of think to yourself, like, where is my interest and where is my passion? in each of these things and and then dive in and if you're still confused the afterword of my book is actually a policy prescription about what we should do collectively to change outcomes for kids 
at the very least care at the very least go to my website which links you to hyper local ways to get involved it'll be linked educate yourself notes. great thank you yeah educate yourself all these meetings are now on zoom dedicate one time this year you're going to go to a school board meeting and you're going to submit a question <laughs> what do we do to help foster kids how are we helping homeless kids do the kids that are in special ed just need glasses just do one thing and then i'm running this campaign kind of tongue-in-cheek it's called donate your small talk i saw that, and the, yeah. the reason I, I did this campaign i'll describe it real quick so donate your small talk is i was so everyone's like oh i'm too this i'm too busy and yada yada yeah i'm like okay well, next time you get in the elevator or you start a Zoom call and you're like, how was your weekend? How are the kids? What'd you have for lunch? Nobody actually cares. <laughs> it's like just filler fruit. It's crap. Yes, you're right. So what if we use that time to talk about children or addiction? What if we educate ourselves and start talking to our circles? Because we talk about sports, we talk about sports and sports becomes more. We do not talk about the 8.6 million children living in poverty, so they're invisible. Let's start talking about them. Hey, did you know 700 kids entered foster care today? Oh, my God. Did you know Coco Chanel, Cher, <laughs> Cher was a foster kid? Just start sprinkling into your conversation instead of talking about nonsense, this fact, whatever your fact is. Yeah. And I think we can all donate our small talk. And then I have this ladder of escalation for getting involved on my website, um, on the nonprofit I started 10 years ago. I think we can all do something at the very least care. What, um, what, did, what was the push? What like finally got you to write your memoir? Um, you know, it was a couple different factors. You know, one was, um, I have a, a, a foster son and I understood that his own journey was incredibly painful. But my attitude my whole life has been, that's what happened, whatever, move on. Yeah. And when I was in my mid, late 30s, I reached a place, I think of like security, financial, mm -hmm. physical, et cetera. I, I, had, I had done everything you're supposed to do. I was a pillar of my community, yada, yada. And I, was, I, was, I realized I was numb. From the moment I entered that delinquency facility at 12 and was assaulted violently for a long time until I left um, foster care and then beyond then, I did not cry for 20 plus years. I had shut that down. And what I realized was my mental health, my, my mechanism for coping was to take these insane, impossible things, put them in a clear plastic box, label it so I could see it and I knew where it was put it in my card catalog system and not deny it, but not have to feel it. Mm -hmm. And when I was 37, my shelf broke. My shelf broke, my son partly broke it. I, I finished breaking it. Not only did I not have a coping mechanism anymore, but all that stuff that I thought didn't affect me, I realized had made me numb and I wasn't living as a full human and that I was actually depressed and, and not having the full spectrum of human emotion and experiences because I had just protected this little thing in there still mm -hmm. that I had to. Then I sought out mental health care and I had really rigorous, really excellent mental health care. And part of it was when you, I carried around so much shame about the things that were done to me, just unbelievable amount. I was embarrassed and I'm ashamed of the stuff. And a lot of people are about what was done to them as children or what they had to do to survive or, or whatever. And I wanted to, I wanted to do a couple things. I wanted to just stop feeling that way. And so writing it down, release some of that power. Mm -hmm. 
And my other frustration is we still have horrible statistics around foster care, children in poverty, families experiencing poverty. And we have shrugged. And I wanted people to read the story, really feel the journey that I was on, that my mom was on, that my family was on, and feel like they could do something, to be inspired uh, to do something. I wanted them to have that blindside movie moment where you walk away from that movie being like, ah! (laughs) And I wanted them to feel that. I wanted them to feel the feels as I was now feeling. And it was it was the right thing to do. I've never been happier in my life. Um, even as I feel like I just published my diary. (laughs) Well, I can tell you, I mean, it's, it's really incredible. And I tell people all the time, like stories are so powerful. Mm -hmm. And you know, when people start telling their story and their journey, it can help so many people. And that's really exactly what you're doing with, with your book. As you know, we close up here and you've been really gracious with your time and thank you so much for coming on. What is your final message or, you know, how do you like to maybe leave a talk or leave a conversation when, when this yeah. is the topic? I, what I ask people to do and your listeners can do this as long as they're not driving is to close their eyes and imagine if they had to put their kid in foster care or their brother or sister's kid or someone they love. Imagine. And then ask yourself, is that what we have? And if it's not, or you don't think that system is good enough for your loved one, yeah, go out and make it happen. Go out and manifest that. In some way, shape, or form, you can. All of us can. All of us can do something. And I've talked about only caring. Educate yourself. Mm-hmm. But what I ask people to do is constantly think that way about somebody else that seems so different than them, than what they're experiencing. You talk about addiction. When you look at someone who's addicted, you're like, why can't you just, (laughs) right? That's put yourself in that moment and try and relate and feel like you have a loved one that's in that crisis. What support do you need? What do you want the laws to be to help that person support their family that might be experiencing that? The empathy is what I hope people begin to further sharpen and develop. We have built walls around each other and ourselves bullshit we all live here together we can do better and i want you to close your eyes and picture your own child entering these systems these shelters this foster care system and if it's not good enough for them then it's not good enough for the kids that are there today and we should fix it immediately you're right i mean if you sat there and thought about it you're like man this is what we got you'd be like if it was your kid you'd be fighting tooling you know doing everything you could to to figure it out and that's what we got to do anyways absolutely and the book is called a place called home um, it's really incredible. I, you know, hope everybody goes out there and read it. Like you said, you did the audio book too, yeah. um, which I yeah. know a lot of people, that's how they get their books sometimes. And, um, it'll be all in the show notes, all the, all the good information, your website, Amazon. I know, you know, very well, it'll be there to, <laughs> to purchase. Um, but David, yeah. thank you for your time. Um, conversation's amazing and, uh, you're really inspiring. I mean, you, you. you're making a change. Thank you. Thank you for the platform and for sharing my story with your audience. I really appreciate it. You didn't have to, and it, it lights it lights another flame in a different direction. So who knows where it'll go? So thank yes, you. Yes, sir. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, click subscribe on your listening platform for upcoming conversations.